Let's, those are some big questions right there, Ron. There's a big one. <laughs> we can break them down. We can break them down. Welcome to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Five New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, Patty Callahan Henry, Mary Alice Monroe, and Ron Block. As novelists, we are five longtime friends with 85 books between us. I am Ron Block. I am so glad you've joined us for fascinating author interviews, along with insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Friends and Fiction Podcast is sponsored by Mama Geraldine's Bodacious Foods. Kathy Cunningham was a successful but unfulfilled radio executive in Atlanta. One night while sipping wine and snacking on expensive cheese straws, she realized her Mama Geraldine's own cheese straw recipe was far superior. The idea for Kathy's company was born. Mama Geraldine's cheese straws now come in six varieties and they are the best-selling cheese straw in the U.S. Plus, the cookies are melt-in-your-mouth delish. Yummy snacks and a woman-owned empire? Now that's something we can really get behind at Friends in Fiction. Try them. You'll be glad you did. Get 20% off your online order with the code FAB5. Welcome to another episode of Friends in Fiction Writer's Block. Today we are going to celebrate National Grilling Month with none other than the amazing Vivian Howard, chef and entrepreneur. She's known as an award-winning restaurateur, television personality, and cookbook author. Grilling and barbecuing are very personal and extremely regional, so we cannot wait to dive in and talk to Vivian about her cookbooks, her background, her restaurants, and her favorite barbecue and grilling tips. I am Ron Block. And I'm Christy Woodson-Harvey, one of the five authors of Friends of Fiction. Before we begin our conversation, let me tell you a little bit about this Eastern North Carolina superstar. Born in Deep Red, North Carolina, as the youngest daughter in a tobacco and hog farming family, Vivian Howard's upbringing was steeped in the Southern food traditions of her neighbors. After college, Vivian moved to New York to work in advertising, but soon transitioned to the city's food and restaurant scene. Vivian honed her culinary skills in the kitchens of some of New York's most esteemed restaurants and trained under some of the most cutting-edge chefs. Since then, she has returned to her roots back in North Carolina and began an empire where she has opened restaurants, become a noted television host, and published two cookbooks, Deep Run Roots, and This Will Make It Taste Good. Welcome, Vivian, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you for having me. Oh, I am so excited. I've been a big fan for a long time. There's so much to talk about here. Let's start with your career trajectory. Can you tell us about your path and how you got where you are today? Just the overview. And since we're talking about grilling and barbecue, can you give us an overview of your home region's approach to it? Wow, that's, those are some big questions right there, Ron. There's a big one. <laughs> we can break them down. We can break them down. No, no. Well, so I grew up here in eastern North Carolina in a little farming community called Deep Run. I always wanted to leave like as early as I can remember and nothing was wrong. I just wanted to leave. <laughs> and I know. I understand. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to live in a city. I, I wanted to walk somewhere other than to the car. 
So I, I went to boarding school. I went to NC State. I moved to New York. I wanted to be in, in media. I wanted to be in news. I wanted to be a journalist. And I could not really get a job doing that. And so I, I started working in advertising and was really unhappy. And then fell back into something that I'd done through college to raise spending money. I started waiting tables and I happened to end up in a restaurant that in 2001, the concept of the restaurant was Southern food via Africa, which is something that, you know, we very much talk about a lot today. Yes. But in 2001, it was really not on the tip of anyone's tongue. And so that was kind of, you know, like a, a big turning point for me. I, I saw for the first time food as a story, as history, as a part of me and my trajectory. And so I wanted to, I still wanted to be a journalist. So I started working in the kitchen at this restaurant for free during the day before my shift as a server on the floor at night. And as a means not to become a cook, but as a means to become a food writer. But then I found that cooking was much easier and a lot easier to get a job. (laughs) At least it seemed easier in the moment. And I was good at it and I liked making stuff and with my hands. And so I just kept doing that. And then my my boyfriend at the time, now husband, and I started a soup business where we delivered soup around the city. There was like an email thing, started also before its time. And that was sort of successful. And then my parents offered to help us open a restaurant here, anywhere in North Carolina, they said. And I thought, wow, Asheville would be cool. Raleigh would be really cool. Right. And it really turned out to be anywhere inside this 10,000 square foot building they had already purchased in downtown Kinston. <laughs> so that's how that started. We ran Chef and the Farmer for like three years. I still wanted to be a journalist. I still wanted to be a storyteller. And I pitched the idea of making this documentary about the dying food traditions of Eastern North Carolina to my childhood friend, Cynthia Hill. That became A Chef's Life. A Chef's Life gave me the opportunity to write my first book, Deep Run Roots, which is about the food traditions of Eastern North Carolina, Deep Run, where I live now, where I grew up. And now I can't even really tell you what I'm doing. <laughs> I mean, I can try. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm in awe from a distance. I'm in awe from a distance. Um, but but I, going back to barbecue just a little bit, you did an episode on uh, Somewhere South that where you visited different pitmasters and kind of explored the whole East Carolina barbecue tradition. Can you tell me how that was and what that was like? Yeah, that was so incredible. So Somewhere South, every episode was about a dish that every culture shares. And so we had a, a, an episode on greens. We had an episode on dumplings. And our final episode was barbecue. And it was by far uh, the most fun to shoot. We got to do a snapshot of Eastern North Carolina barbecue, which is something that we, it's one of our pride points here in this region of the state. You know, when it's done the best, it's uh, whole hog and it's over wood. And so we got to go to two two places in Eastern North Carolina that do some version of that. One was Sid's in Beulahville. And they they really have the best barbecued chicken that that is out there right now, in my opinion. And then we also went to Skylight Inn here, which is whole hog pork barbecue. But barbecue chicken is something that, you know, when you grow up in Eastern North Carolina, you don't eat like 
whole hog barbecue every day or even every week. It's very much celebration food. Uh, but mm-hmm. chicken is something that we would have more frequently. And it's the most profound food memory I have of my youth is this ritual every Saturday morning where this man that I think owed my dad money and in lieu of paying him money brought us three barbecue chickens every Saturday morning and put them on our kitchen counter and I slept in the room next to the kitchen and it was like the smell of uh, smoke and vinegar and char is was better than Folgers in your cup I guess (laughs) I'm with you I am with you I am so hungry now because I mean, I right? taste that chicken. Yes. And people would do it for like fundraisers and yeah. things. I was like, my dad would come home with these, you know, big styrofoam containers of, you know, this barbecue chicken. And I just remember how it smelled and tasted and the vinegar and, oh, it's so, so good. So good. Well, as we all know, cookbooks are obviously a really great way to tell a story about a region or a cuisine or even a person. And I think you're probably, you know, best known for being a chef, but you have, Said, and you sort of indicated here that writing right. is a real passion of yours. And you know, you have written these incredible, incredible cookbooks that not only, you know, give us recipes, but they also really tell a story about this region and about you, which I think is really incredible. So you you sort of gave us a little bit, but can you kind of give us like a deeper dive into your journey to publishing your first two books? Yes. So I when A Chef's Life started, several agents reached out to me and said, you know, you need a cookbook. Everybody on TV, cooking on TV has a cookbook. And that was like so dreamy for me because I had always wanted to be, you know, a writer. And the agents said, all you really need to do is like write a few sentences about what you want your book to be and we'll find you a writer and we'll help you and we'll find you a publisher. And I was like, oh, well, that's not really what I thought it would be like. <laughs> and I did this dinner. I, I cooked this lunch actually at this event in Oxford, Mississippi for the Southern Foodways Alliance. And it was like the big lunch of the year. And I wrote, it was dedicated to the women in my life that made me the woman that I am or was. And, and each uh, course, I wrote a little snippet about that woman, my mother and my two grandmothers, and then one course dedicated to my, to me. And there was an agent at that event and he didn't even know I had a TV show. And he, his name's David Black. And he approached me afterward and said, you know, these, this is beautiful. Have you ever thought about writing a book? And he, I chose him because he made me write a proposal and he believed that I could write the book. And that was not really the expectation. You know, most like television cooks don't do that. And most restaurant chefs don't do that. There's no reason we should expect that they would be able to. But he really guided me through the process of finding a publisher. And I ended up with uh, Little Brown and an editor. You know, when you find a publisher, you really kind of choose an editor. At least that's what I was trying to do. Someone that I felt like I could jive with. And I chose this gentleman named Michael Sand and we started working together and I sent him my first chapter and it was like, you know, taking all your clothes off and walking naked through a room because I'd never really really written anything for anybody and except for my proposal and they liked that. And, but this was like a fully formed chapter of a very out of the box cookbook that really involves memory and storytelling and 
using fruits and vegetables to tell the story of my life. And so, so it was like, you know, very, a very vulnerable thing to send it to him. And like four days later, he sent me a note back and was like, this is really interesting. And the pesto was very lemony. And I was like, okay, great. And then two days later, I got an email from him saying that he was leaving Little Brown. And, and I took it as like, Oh my God, it was so bad. He quit. <laughs> you, you got rid of him. <laughs> so that was, that was stressful. But then I got paired with Mike Zerban, who's been my editor with Deep Run Roots. And then this will make it taste good. And he's a, become a very close friend of mine. But it took me a long time to trust him. Like I wrote that chapter. I sent it to my first editor. He quit. And then I basically wrote the rest of the book, which was like 700 pages without sending anything to Mike Zerban because I just didn't want, I wanted to get so far along that they couldn't change what I was doing. So I did. And I don't know. It was a great experience. That's such an interesting point because I do think you have to really, especially when you're starting out, you really have to protect what you want to say because it is really easy to get caught up in that. Like, well, they know better. They've been doing this longer. And there is such an authenticity to both of your books that I feel like that really, really came through. And, but I've been in that position of losing an editor and it's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. (laughs) You feel like you're, it's, it's just, it's like such a close relationship and you have to start over again. It's terrible. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, so especially in this will make it taste good. Well, in both of your books, you really not only open up about your culinary secrets, but you shared a lot of really personal details about your life and some really vulnerable stories about the pressure that has come along with your fame. But even still, I mean, I feel like you have so many incredible ideas all the time and are just this sort of factory of these amazing new ideas. And not only do you have them, but you actually go after them. And I think that's really incredible. And so I'm really interested in how you are able to just handle everything that you do, but also, you know, the, the, the nuts and bolts of it, but also maintain your creativity. Because I think sometimes it's easy to get so bogged down in what we're doing that we don't have time to step back and really think about what's next, what could be better, what could I do, what can really light me up today. So do you have any tips for people? Or maybe it's just something that happens for you naturally. I don't know. I don't think it happens for me naturally. Creativity is my escape. It's like yeah. it's like my survival. Like it's the way that I protect myself. It's the way that I get through difficult things. It's you know, I, it's funny because I've been I'm like starting a kind of a new a new part of my like culinary career. And I was telling a friend yesterday, like it's interesting. You know, I've always scoffed at this phrase like do something you love because mm-hmm. it'll never feel like work and like like whatever I've always told people like if you love cooking don't become a chef because once it becomes <laughs> work, it, yeah it's true but what I'm learning you know as I get further in you know further down the, this road is that what, I think what that means is like do something you love because if you love it you'll find ways to evolve in it and through yeah. it and 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 it can be it can be a consistent and you can change. So I, I love learning new things about uh, about food and about cooking. And I love 
creativity keeps me sane and I, um, not the people around me. Uh, <laughs> it keeps you sane and makes them crazy, right? <laughs> I think that's how my ideas mostly are too. So I <laughs> when I say, when I come into a room and I say, hey, I've got an idea, like people duck. Everyone. Like, not me. Not stop, me. Stop. <laughs> It's like, oh, my phone's ringing. <laughs> that's good. That's actually a great segue into what I want to talk about a little bit. And that's handy and hot. During the pandemic, and I, this is where my fandom for you grew. I was a big fan of your handy and hot mail order during the pandemic. And I, I got community organizer. I got the little green dress. I got the red weapons. And I experimented. I love the little cards you sent. But I, I kept thinking, this is brilliant marketing. And then when your cookbook came out, and I fell in love with that even more, I felt like I already knew it. But my favorite, I'll tell you, was the pineapple orange cranberry pecan honey rum cake. <laughs> and I will post, I will post a picture that I still have pieces of that in my freezer and I know I wasn't alone that did this because when I whenever you would announce it within five minutes everything was sold out so you knew you had to we had I had three people on it so like, get it get it and we <laughs> do it so but I want to know a little bit about how that came to be and was that just kind of a pivot because of the pandemic and how did you get through the pandemic well so handy and hot the online bake shop started because we were going to open a, a bake shop here in Kinston that was going to be like coffee and baked goods and but I knew that we would never be able to like make a go of it just doing that in this small town. And so this mail order piece of it was always a part of it. And then Hurricane Florence came and just made it really clear for me that I didn't want to open another business like brick and mortar here then maybe forever. And, but we had already invested all this time and energy in the branding and the ideation of it. And so we, like flipped the business model on its head and started this mail order bake specialty baked goods thing where like right. Mother's Day we'll make five hundred of something and then just sell them. And then same thing, rum cake was for Christmas. And that was one that is that is oh, a really good rum cake. And it's delicious. The pandemic <laughs> hit, it was like, you know, Chevin the Farmer has long been a destination restaurant and mm-hmm. the the takeout model didn't work for us, nor did I really want to do it. And I knew that we could reach more people more effectively, like by mail order. And I saw all these people like cooking at home and wanting to cook, but wanting to have something to make it exciting. And that, and I was like in the process of finishing this book that was literally about that. And, and like, it seemed so right to, to package these condiments and ship them and that was that energy and momentum and the, the creativity around that was really what got me through like a lot of, and the, the revenue is what got us through the, the first part of the pandemic. And it feels like so long ago when you brought that up, I was like, wow, that happened. I know. It, it, well, it feels lo- a long time ago for me too, but it really wasn't. No. I remember getting the first handy and hot email and I happened to just be like, I didn't know that you were doing this. And I'd happened to just be, I was like on my computer, I was on my email, it popped up. And I was like, I can't even remember what it was. What the, do you remember what the first one was? It was a mother's day coconut lime pound cake. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I was so excited about it and I saw it and I was like, oh my gosh, this is only going to last like two seconds. And so I went on there right away and I sent a bunch to my publishing house. And then I was like, oh my God, I didn't get one for myself. But of course, <laughs> it was like 15 minutes and they were all gone and like, you know, and then I remember thinking, 
how is she doing something else? Well, I don't do all this stuff. I know, but still, but you're, but you are at the helm of all of it. And it's just amazing. It really is. I mean, it wows me. (laughs) Thank you. But I do want to, you know, so much about today's marketplace is about how things look and the branding around it and, and how clever you can be and how, how you can curate something that looks like you and reflects the thing that you projects, the thing that you want it to be. And that really, I, I credit Baxter and Ryan really with, all of that, Baxter Miller and Ryan Stansel, I, yeah. they have added so much value and, and smartness and millennialish uh, <laughs> <laughs> to my world. So I just had to, t- to credit them. No, they're amazing. Oh my goodness, they really are. They're y'all are the dream team for sure. Well, so just to pivot a little back to a chef's life. My five minutes of fame really came from the few second snapshot of me on your rice dinner episode. And every time I'm not kidding you, every time that episode airs, I will get this like flurry of emails from people being like, was that you? Is that you on the show? And it's so exciting and so fun. But I learned so much that night. I mean, we were not really involved at all. We were just eating and chatting and having a good time, but it showed me how many hours you're shooting to create just a few minutes of content. So what we're watching on TV is not even close to what you're actually filming. And anyway, it just really surprised me. So when you got started, you know, with being on the show and creating the show and making this vision come to life, did you have any surprises along the way? Okay. Well, first of all, Christy, I'd like to say your five minutes of fame did not happen on my show. Like, thank you, New York Times bestselling author. I'm telling you, I people all the time. And then sometimes like, I'll just be somewhere and somebody will be like, I saw you on the rice show. Like, and it'll be somewhere totally random. And I'll always love it. It makes me so excited. <laughs> and wow. I had just had a will and I was wearing a jumpsuit and I was like, I don't think I knew that you were filming that night. And I'm like, oh, what an unfortunate thing to be wearing. <laughs> that's what I look, that's what I think every time I watch the show, I'm like, wow, I must not have known I was filming. <laughs> Surprises. So many. I mean, you know, we, I didn't have any expectation of a chef's life. I didn't think that anyone was going to see it. And, you know, making a show about Eastern North Carolina, it feels like something that is, pure like passion project stupid um so I didn't think anyone was ever going to see it so I didn't really have any expectations or I probably would have dressed differently not worn maternity clothes while not pregnant (laughs) beautiful in every episode (laughs) but you know the big surprise and I think the thing that kept me like making the show for so long was that like how much it affected people and how it brought families together and and how so many times people said, you know, this is the only thing that my kids will watch with me. And, or this story, I was actually, it was the first, after the first season of A Chef's Life and I was working in the dining room at Chef and the Farmer and I was really, I, I was over it because I don't know, the show on PBS is, is different than a show on a network where you, you know, we had to raise all the money for it. There was, I was not ready for it. People did watch it, you know what I mean? And, and, and so it was, I was just overwhelmed. And this, this woman who was maybe about 50, 
years old. She was leaving the restaurant and she said, I just wanted to tell you that your show had such a big impact on me. She said, you know, my mother had Alzheimer's and I would visit her, you know, on the daily and she, she rarely knew who I was. And one night we watched an episode of your show, the rice episode where you make, (laughs) you make chicken and rice with your mom and then you feed it to your children. And she's like, every time I went back to see my mom after that, she said, I want to watch that show with that woman who, their mom and then feeds it to her children and that that just like made me feel like this show was really different than a lot of television in that it 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 really touched people and and they could see themselves in it and so that was the big surprise how people could see themselves in what we did that's amazing. That It's like the unexpected treasure that you find in doing something like that with your passionate about. Well, I think it's incredible, too, how just like one person's story like that can make you yes. think like it was all worth it. Yeah. You know, like all, yeah. everything that I went through for this day was worth it because that person had that really exquisite and special moment. Yeah. And then like going to book signings and having people wait in line for hours to, to tell me that they, they were, you know, they were working in new Orleans as, as a chef and watching a chef's life inspired them to move back to their hometown in Wisconsin and open a restaurant with their partner. And I mean, I heard these things over and over again, or like, I, I, I love watching this because I can see how difficult it is. And I can look at all that now and be like, that was really cool because yeah. it was many, a few years ago. Hindsight, hindsight. So that was where your television journey began. But after that, you moved on and you started a new amazing show somewhere south. Do you mind talking about that? Yes. Yes. So somewhere South was like my, my passion project. I, I felt like I had told my story and I wanted to shed light on so many more stories in the South and like be a part of telling the story that the South is just a microcosm of the rest of the nation. And that food is like an ever evolving thing. Like our cuisine is not static and it's affected by the traditions that we bring when we move somewhere. And, and, and then those traditions that we bring are affected by the place where we land. And I, that's what's so fascinating uh, to me about right. the evolution of cuisine. And I wanted to tell a story of that on TV and so, uh, yeah, we made Somewhere South five one-hour episodes. Each one is about a dish that every culture shares. Because really, and I'm not the only one who believes this, there's like really about 20 dishes in the whole world and, and every culture finds their way of, of, of preparing that dish, meaning like porridge, a way of cooking greens, you know, something wrapped in dough, barbecue, yes. pickles, Dumplings, so you know, noodles. Noodles could be dumplings. So I, we could have a lot, a long podcast about this. But so that's how that started. And I'm in. <laughs> it was it was a beautiful experience to like be learning again and and to feel like I was being authentic on camera again, um, and to also not have my personal and professional 
triumphs and tragedies be the focus of the narrative. Yeah, it, it came through so amazing, um, the, especially the hand pie episode, watching the different ways that the hand pies were being made. And especially one woman struck me who she was in a factory and it was this big oven and she had worked there forever. And you were just talking and you were just in awe of her. But we were all in awe of her through your eyes. And it just that's just one moment of that whole episode that just resonated. So I so appreciate that. And I know a million other people do, too. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I know we could talk to you all night, but you have other things to do. And so it is grilling month and we do have to talk a little bit about grilling. So can you tell us what is your perfect grilling meal? What would you include? Definitely uh, barbecue chicken. I mean, I've already said that, but we barbecue chicken a lot at my house. And what I like to do is get a whole chicken, like a not a huge one, about three pounds and spatchcock it. So, oh, Ron is a fan of spatchcock. I'm in. Oh, I just learned a year ago, and I every time. No, I wrote about this in a novel, and I was so glad. I mean, and so many people have asked me. I didn't know, like, Will, my husband just does it. I didn't know that was like a thing that other people didn't know about. So, I, I love that answer. So, and people love the word, and it also, you know, I think the thing with barbecue chicken, if you're trying to barbecue a whole chicken, it never really cooks evenly unless you know, you have to lay it out and that's what this allows you to do. It also gives you a great, well, for people who don't know, basically you just buy a chicken. If there's, you know, the liver and stuff inside, pull it out and then cut alongside the backbone of the chicken and save the backbone and put that in some broth. Like that gives you, you know, something to do there. There was likely a neck inside the cavity as well that you could use in that way too. And then you can just like press the chicken out. Like I like to break its breastbone. You know, if you've got kids that are into that kind of thing, they might enjoy that. (laughs) And then grill it. I, I always do skin side up, flesh side down for the majority of the cooking. It's it's wonderful. It's a great way to do it. And when I discovered it and t- I've tried different spice rubs on it, I'm like, I'm completely hooked. Yes. Oh, so I can't just have chicken. So no. I mean, you can. It's your you world. Can. You can do whatever you want. Um, barbecue <laughs> chicken. And we do, I really love my blueberry barbecue sauce. I, know, I never like yeah. to recommend any of my products or anything, okay. but this is this is really good and it's exceptionally good yes and it's great it's great on chicken and the recipes in deep run roots and you can also buy it in the bottle but so blueberry barbecue chicken and i'm a huge fan of grilled summer vegetables Mm -hmm. like grilled zucchini grilled squash that you scoop the seeds out of you know if you're if you're having mushy squash on the grill it's because you're not scooping your seeds out because when those seeds get hot they're full of water they expand and push water into the squash or zucchini and that's what ends up making it mushy i mean and then anything any of those vegetables that i'm grilling i'm going to take off the grill immediately and squeeze some kind of citrus on them. And then if you have a copy of this will make it taste good, toss some red weapons on there and maybe some goat cheese or Parmesan cheese or blue cheese. And you have like a little grilled salad to go with it. I know what I'm doing this weekend. (laughs) Spatchcock and a chicken, Ron. Oh, you know it. I just got a new grill and that's, that's what we've been waiting to do that. So now I'm in and I actually have the blueberry barbecue sauce in a bottle. So 
I remember when you like first started having that blueberry barbecue chicken at the restaurant. See, now this is taking me back a little bit. And you have the squash casserole with yes. it. Oh, yeah, my. Yeah. oh my gosh. That <laughs> recipe, the squash casserole recipe is one of my favorites for my entire life as a cook. And it's in Deep Run Roots in the squash chapter. And it's it's true to recipe. Sometimes when you have restaurant recipes translated for a home cook, they're not the same because it's just not exactly possible but this is true to recipe. So I would add that to my perfect grilled summer menu. Although I'd then probably take away the grilled squash and do like a grilled corn and maybe okra Mm. salad with maybe some grilled peaches in there too. Yum, 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 yum. So Vivian, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a huge pleasure. And we've all learned a lot about grilling, but we've also increased our admiration of you tenfold. And like some of the things we've learned from you and just hearing your stories has just been very touching. And I I can't tell you how much we appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for coming. It was such a treat to have you and to get to see you, even though everybody else is just listening. But thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. Absolutely. Thank you all. On behalf of Christy and the other Fab Five, thank you for tuning in. Please remember to tell a friend and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Remember, we're here with a new episode every Friday. We can't wait to share the stories with you all. Thank you for tuning in to Friends and Fiction Writers Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where you can see our live Friends and Fiction show that airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.